You can turn in your Bibles to the book of Jude, the epistle of Jude. We are still in our sermon series in Jude, and um, we're slowly making our way through Jude's epistle. And uh, this is, uh, I think, our fifth week in Jude, and we are in verses 8 through 13. Verses 8 through 13. And uh, this is really the, the, um, the body of Jude's letter. We, we, got, we started getting into the body of Jude's letter uh, last week, and we're continuing through the body of Jude's letter. We spent quite a bit of time uh, in his sort of introduction, trying to get a lay of the land, but here we are uh, moving a little bit more quickly through the body of Jude's letter. Um, and you might be able to see here uh, why Jude is often a neglected book. It's because it's kind of strange. But nonetheless, this is God's inspired word. And so there's gold here, there's nourishment here for us by God's grace. And so we want to dig in to Jude 8 through 13. Before we get there, if you're a guest with us, please take a moment to fill out the Connect card. And you can find those in the shelf of the pew in front of you. Uh, and that's just a good way for us to get to know a little bit about you and how we can get you connected with what God is doing here in our church family. Uh, we'd love to get you connected with what God is doing here uh, and get you connected with our church family. And so please take a moment, fill that out. Uh, and we'd love to pray for anything. If you have anything that you'd like to request prayer for this week, Please take a moment to, to jot down some requests there. We delight in praying for you this week. Um, Dan and I would. But uh, if you want to stand with me whenever you're at Jude 8. Jude 8, and we'll be reading on through verse 13 here. When we listen to this, we want to listen with reverence and joy as if the risen Lord Jesus is here speaking these words to us. These words come with that exact same kind of authority. So we want to listen with reverence and with joy to the word of our God. Jude writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved." forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for its clarity, its authority, its veracity, its sufficiency. We give you thanks that we have a sure and certain word from you. From you. And we pray as we just prayed for our partnering churches across this region 
that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we would read your word and behold wondrous things from your word here this morning and so that you would sanctify us in your truth, Lord. Your word is truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Now, you may or may not agree with me on this, but um, I have the microphone, so you have to listen to what I have to say. Sauerkraut is not good. Um, it's, it's not, thank you, yes, yeah. It's not a particularly pleasant food. In fact, uh, you know, one could say, one could venture to say that really the only acceptable form of sauerkraut is when it's deep fried in little balls and dipped in sauce, which almost anything is good if you eat it that way. Well, other than that, though, it, sauerkraut is, is not um, particularly good. You're basically just eating old cabbage, old sour cabbage. Um, and yet, some people obviously swear, to, uh, uh, swear by the health benefits of, of sauerkraut. Uh, you've probably heard of the New Year's tradition of eating sauerkraut on New Year's Eve. Uh, it's a tradition amongst the Pennsylvania Dutch, which has become more and more common amongst other people as well. Uh, and it's at least partly due to the nutritional benefits, we could assume. Uh, sauerkraut is high in vitamin C and vitamin K. Uh, the fiber, probiotics, microbes uh, apparently are said to improve digestion. Uh, it's supposed to be a time-honored remedy for canker sores. And get this, as I was reading about it this last week, during the Civil War, one physician seemed to have lowered the, the rate of death and disease among prisoners of war, an achievement which he... Uh, contributed uh, preeminently to the gift and benefit of sauerkraut that he was feeding the, the prisoners with. And so sauerkraut, while it's not, it doesn't taste particularly good, apparently there are health benefits to it. And Jude, in a way, is kind of like sauerkraut. Um, to be frank, you know, some of what Jude says is kind of sour at first taste. Uh, some of what he says can be hard to take for, for some of us. And yet, we wholeheartedly believe that the words on these pages are necessary and by God's grace would contribute a great deal to our health as a church and, and as followers of Jesus. And we've talked about how Jude is probably the most neglected book of the New Testament. And to be frank, that's most likely due to the, the kind of um, severity and oddity of uh, the words uh, in Jude, words from last week's text, this week's text, and probably next week's text as well. They're, they're kind of odd as well as kind of austere. Um, and, and this is the kind of body of Jude's letter here, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, and his words are, are throughout the body of this letter, to put it kind of bluntly, just sort of weird. They're kind of weird. You probably noticed that last week as we talked about angels who had left their position of authority. And there's, there's more um, kind of oddities as we move along. Uh, but then not only that, Jude is austere. He's stern. And, and, you know, those are characteristics that we Americans don't really like so much. We like to keep things lighthearted. And his austerity, it continues from last week into this week. As he begins to describe the, the ungodly leaders which gave rise to this letter. As you know, we've talked about the occasion and the purpose of this letter. The purpose being that Jude is exhorting God's people to contend for the faith, to protect the gospel, to defend the gospel, to preserve the deposit 
of faith that we have received from the apostles that we find in the New Testament uh, that the apostles of Jesus Christ have given us. That's the purpose of this letter. And the, the occasion which gave rise to this purpose is that there were wolves in sheep's clothing in these churches. There were false teachers and ungodly leaders who had crept into these churches and who were living ungodly lives and teaching heretical doctrine. And so far, we've just learned a little bit about them. We've just learned a little bit about them. But here in verses 8 to 13, we get probably the clearest description of them in the letter. Jude is basically just kind of listing out uh, uh, characteristics of these false teachers. And so initially, I thought I would just take each of these characteristics listed out one by one. I counted 21 of them, and I thought like a 21-point sermon might not go over so well. So uh, I tried to kind of consolidate them, and I got them down to 10. I figured that wouldn't do, so I went back to the drawing board, and I got them down to three, and that seems to be a a little bit more viable normally, three points rather than 21 or 10. So we're going to look at three kind of broad uh, overview characteristics of these ungodly teachers here in Jude. And I want you to see here, this is not just a problem. This is not just a history lesson. Okay, this is not just a history lesson about what we can learn about the ungodly leaders that Jude is referring to in his letter. This is much more than that because the problem of ungodly leaders and false teachers was not just a problem in the first century. It's a problem in the 21st century as well. In fact, we might even say that the problem has grown as the church has grown, especially we might say, in our social media age and influencer age and and evangelical celebrity age, an age in which people's gifts and personalities can carry their influence often much further than their character can handle. And because of that, we need Jude's help to, to be able to spot and identify ungodly leaders. And in these verses, Jude shows us that we can identify ungodly leaders by the sources they depend on, by the ambition they demonstrate and the character they display. First, we identify ungodly leaders by the sources they depend on. Jude writes, beginning in verse 8, Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. And these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So all that to say, they reject the authority of God, which is mediated to us through his word, and instead they rely on dreams, and they rely on uh, their own urges and instincts to guide and govern their beliefs and their conduct. And this is what Jude is saying when he writes that they reject authority. And blaspheme the glorious ones. The authority that they reject is that of Jesus Christ, which Jude already mentioned in verse 4. We already saw when when it said that, that these leaders deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so they they seem to be doing this and that they are completely defying and rejecting what the word of God has said regarding morality and sexuality. Uh, uh, That's what's meant by this particular phrase in verse 8 when he says that they defile the flesh. That is a that, that pretends to sins of sexual immorality, as we've already noted in last week's text in the series. And related to that, uh, to what we saw last week 
about the scriptures, they're not just rejecting the authority of Jesus in relation to you know, what he said in his earthly ministry and what we find recorded in the Gospels. They're rejecting the whole of the authoritative word of God, particularly what we find in the Old Testament laws. That would have been the, the sort of canon that they had at the time. And that's what this reference to the glorious ones is about here. Uh, that's, of course, a, a reference to angels. And you can see, uh, you, you can find this idea communicated throughout several places in the New Testament that the law that we have recorded in the Old Testament was delivered to God's people through angelic intermediaries, is the word that's often communicated. Angels were viewed as messengers of God, those who through, uh, through whom God delivered the divine revelation of his law. Well, apparently, in rejecting God's law, these ungodly leaders were also uh, blaspheming the angels through whom God delivered his law. They were seeking to discredit the messengers in order to discredit the message that they came with as well. Thus, they did not depend on the authoritative word of Jesus Christ for their teaching and their doctrine and their way of life. And what did they depend on instead? A different source, two sources uh, mentioned here. First, instead of depending on the word of God for their teaching, they depended on their own dreams, Jude says. Jude says that they were relying on their dreams they, so that they uh, you know, might get up on the Lord's Day morning and they might go to the front of the room to deliver uh, their sermon, their address, and instead of you know, unrolling an Old Testament scroll or finding um, you know, a copy of a New Testament epistle or a copy of a gospel or something like that, or instead of teaching on one of the uh, apostolic creedal statements that were being passed along from church to church at that time, instead of that, they would get up and they would talk about a dream that they had, and they would teach as if the content of their dreams were an authoritative revelation for the congregation present. Second, not only their dreams, but they depended on their own instinctual desires and urges. She says in verse 10, but they blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So you see, they, they cast aside God's authoritative word with its clear moral standards, and instead they follow their bodily instincts and urges and feelings. Now, long before the 21st century, these people were teaching my truth. That's not my truth, or this is my truth. They were teaching my truth long before the 21st century. They didn't rely on what God had said. They relied on what they thought to be true and what they felt to be right. In other words, they basically sought to replace the authority of God and Christ with themselves. They viewed and presented themselves as the authority for Christian belief and practice, not God. They asserted their own dreams and feelings as authoritative over and against the authoritative word of God. And Jude contrasts these ungodly leaders with the archangel Michael here in verse 9. And this is that kind of odd piece here uh, that a lot of people just really don't know what to do with. It's odd. It's weird. The Bible can be weird sometimes. Uh, and, and maybe we should say interesting instead. Uh, it's very interesting. And he writes here, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, if you go looking for that particular story in scripture, you're not going to find it. Okay, so Moses' death is in the Bible, 
but not this business about Michael and the devil battling it out over his body after the fact. Uh, In fact, you'll have a hard time finding that particular story anywhere because it seems that it likely came from an extra-biblical piece of Jewish literature called the Testament of Moses or the Assumption of Moses, and we only have uh, a partial uh, manuscript, a partial copy of this, which is actually just a Latin translation from the 6th century, and the portion of it that we have doesn't include this particular story. And so it's not scripture. We don't have uh, any sort of uh, recording of this uh, by a firsthand source. And, and, and to be clear, in quoting the assumption of Moses here, Jude is not ascribing biblical authority to a non-biblical book. Okay, non-biblical books are sometimes quoted in the Bible, uh, you know, similar to how I might quote Bob Dylan or David Foster Wallace in a sermon uh, at times. You know, am I ascribing biblical authority to, to Bob Dylan? Heavens no. Um, but you know, Bobby can sometimes have a point that highlights or illustrates uh, a truth that we find in Scripture rather well. And so sometimes we quote Bob Dylan. Um, and, and similar to that, Jude believes that the assumption of Moses, and this particular story within it here, highlights or illustrates the point he's making. And the point here is this. The false teachers are assuming a position of authority in the church and presenting themselves in positions of authority in the church that not even the archangel Michael has the audacity to assume. They reject God's authority and they assert their dreams and instinctual urges as authority. But when Michael is battling with the devil and faced with this this task of rebuking the devil, something which is completely just and right for him to do, not even he assumes the authority of the Lord to make such a judgment. Instead, he appeals to the authority of the Lord. He didn't presume upon his own authority, but relied on the authority of God, whereas these ungodly leaders assumed the authority to make blasphemous judgments about angelic beings and about God and about his word and about Christ and humanity and sexuality and the rest of it. They depended upon a source other than God and his word. And friends, this is, this is often characteristic of ungodly leaders and false teachers in the church. Instead of depending on God's word as their authority in ministry, They depend on other sources. They they might depend on dreams or visions or other subjective things. They might depend on what they feel is right or what they desire to be right or what is convenient for them and their natural urges. They might depend on modern philosophical concepts or recent psychological research or whatever. And some of those things might even be valuable, but they don't depend preeminently on God's authority and on God's word for their teaching. And oftentimes, it would be more subtle than this, of course. Uh, rather than blatantly denouncing Scripture as our final authority, a pastor, a pastor might teach an unbiblical doctrine or idea and then appeal to selective texts in Scripture to prove his point, not taking the whole of the biblical canon as, as his authority, but conveniently cherry-picking. You can see preachers uh, of the prosperity gospel do this very thing. Uh, They they might have some texts that they can appeal to that speak to maybe a a, a moment of God's tangible or monetary blessing upon a particular person. But they choose their texts selectively and they leave out the whole of the biblical witness. 
Or perhaps a pastor might undermine the authority of Scripture by um, displaying a kind of embarrassment regarding certain scriptural texts and certain scriptural doctrines. Uh, perhaps when, when they come to scriptural teaching on hell or on sexuality, they'll sheepishly declare that, you know, he wishes, he wishes this kind of stuff wasn't in the Bible, subtly suggesting that he's more merciful or mo- more open-handed than God. Or maybe he'll avoid subjects like this entirely, even if he doesn't blatantly denounce them in the authority of God's word, he undermines it by, by avoiding subjects like this. But in all of this, ungodly leaders and false teachers undermine the authority of God and his word and depend on sources, other sources for their life and for their doctrine. Next, we can identify ungodly leaders by the ambition they demonstrate. Instead of being marked by an ambition to love and care for God's people, ungodly leaders demonstrate a, a, a selfish ambition. Uh, they're, promote, uh, they're, they're, they're self-promoting and they're, they're greedy. And this is what Jude is writing about in verse 11 when he brings up uh, three Old Testament figures who were predecessors to these ungodly leaders here in Jude's letter. Remember, Jude likes to do things in threes. And that's what he does with these historical figures. And what all three of these historical figures have in common is that they were marked by a kind of selfish ambition. First, Jude compares these ungodly leaders to Cain. He says that they walked in the way of Cain. Uh, Walking is a a common metaphor in scripture for like living a certain manner of life. And apparently Cain's manner of life is the manner of life in which these leaders lived. Uh, And what manner of life is that? As you know, Cain was the son of Adam and Eve, and he murdered his brother Abel, particularly because of his jealousy and hatred for his brother. Abel uh, had given an offering to the Lord that the Lord accepted because it was offered by faith, And Cain's offering was rejected because it was not offered by faith. And when Cain saw that Abel's offering was accepted, Cain became enraged with jealousy and hatred for his brother to the point that he murdered his very own brother. Now, I doubt that uh, these ungodly leaders here in Jude's letter are just outright murdering people in the congregation. Uh, This particular uh, strand of leadership wouldn't have been all that insidious if they were just outright murdering people. So they probably didn't murder anyone, and yet they are, in a way, destroying lives and destroying churches because they're not satisfied with their own place in life and because they love themselves more than they love their fellow church members. Like Cain, they had abandoned all self-control due to their envy and desire for pleasure and prestige. They were marked by this very same kind of selfish ambition that Cain embodied. And this becomes even more clear in our next example, where Jude compares these ungodly leaders to Balaam. He says that they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to, to Balaam's error. Some of you are probably more familiar with uh, Balaam's donkey than with Balaam himself. Um, Balaam, though, was a, a, he was a kind of prophet for hire. Like if you paid him enough, you could pay him to say pretty much anything you wanted him to say. And uh, we find someone seeking to hire him to do this exact thing in Numbers 22 through 24. Uh, there, the Moabite king, Balak, sees Israel passing through his land, and he becomes nervous that they'll invade and overtake Moab. And so he hires Balaam's services as a prophet to pronounce a curse on the people of Israel. 
And while the Lord kept Balaam back from cursing his people, Balaam still sought to do so, not at first, but eventually. And why did he seek to pronounce this curse? Because of his greed, as we see in Numbers 22, verses 21 through 35. Well, likewise, these ungodly teachers and leaders in Jude are greedy. They're driven by greed, he says. And, and, Tid- and Paul says in Titus 1.7 that pastors in the church are not to be greedy for gain, but they're to be hospitable, a lover, of, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. These leaders in Jude are not. They're greedy for gain, and they seem to even be leveraging their position in the church as a means of satisfying that greed like Balaam here. They're marked by Balaam's selfish ambition. And then third is is that of Korah. Jude writes that they perished in Korah's rebellion. Uh, And this particular example comes from Numbers 16 when Korah rebelled against the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Now, Korah was a, a Levitical priest and he was a leader amongst God's people, but he wasn't content with his position. He wanted to have the leadership role and status of Moses and of Aaron. And so he organized a rebellion with his cohorts and sought to overthrow Moses' and Aaron's leadership. Well, likewise, Jude says that these leaders are not satisfied with their positions. They want more power, more authority, more influence, and so much so that they're even causing divisions and rebellions against leadership in the church. And because of this, Jude says, they're going to perish just like Corinth, he even says it in the past tense. Their judgment is as good as done because they're marked by Korah's same selfish ambition. And this is what marks ungodly leaders. They're driven by selfish ambition instead of an ambition to love and care for God's people. And we see this today, of course. I've talked with more than several of you recently uh, who have been listening to Mike Cosper's new podcast, uh, the, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, I think is what it's called. It's been fascinating to, to kind of recall and to hear the stories uh, of, of um, the traits and, and all this that characterize Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill. But, but one of the more fascinating parts of this has been that Cosper has skillfully exposed uh, that this is not just an isolated incident. There is a whole culture within evangelicalism which overvalues largeness and fame and gifts and success and undervalues character and care and humility, of which Mars Hill is really just a symptom of that that greater issue. And you can see this, though, clearly in in Mars Hill and in Mark Driscoll. There's this desire, as you listen to the podcast, to grow a really big church and to write really widely read books and to grow, uh, you know, to, to preach globally listened to sermons and to have a famously admired platform and to accumulate large crowds of followers and all while they're leaving an array of broken and wounded people in their wake. There's ambition there, but it's not an ambition to love and care for God's people. And of course, again, this can be so insidious, can't it? It can be so insidious because in local churches and cultures, when things like this take place, it's often done in the name of the mission of the church. It's often done in the name of getting the gospel out there. Good things, to be sure. And yet, if one's ambition is to truly fulfill the biblical mission of the church, they won't kill sheep to do it. They'll care for the sheep. That's part of the mission of the church, is to care for God's sheep. They won't kill sheep to do it. They'll care for sheep. 
And so with that, here's an important piece of application here as a church. We ought to be careful when we are appointing elders and leaders within the church. In the future, later this year, Lord willing, we're going to put some men in front of you as candidates for eldership within this particular body of believers. And, and if the Lord permits, we'll continue to do that as time goes on, as long as the future of our church endures. We will put elders before you, Lord willing, to appoint as a church. And when we do, we ought to be careful to appoint elders who are not marked by selfish ambition and greed and a hunger for power and authoritarianism. We ought to appoint elders who love the sheep and care for the sheep and shepherd the sheep. Jesus showed us what an elder ought to be as he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Elders ought to be appointed for service, and their ambition ought to be humble service. That ought to be the ambition of elders, is to humbly serve and care for the congregation. And it's part of your duty then as a congregation to ensure that elders in this church are marked by such ministry. This is why we put elder candidates before you. And we give you several months to observe their life and their character and their ministry. Because we want you to have time to talk with them if need be. And we want you to have time to get to know them if you don't. This is an essential duty for us if we're going to be a congregation that continues to contend for the faith and preserve the gospel for the lost and for coming generations. We must have godly and qualified elders if that's going to be the case. And in order to have godly and qualified elders, this congregation needs to be sure to appoint godly and qualified elders. We must appoint elders whose ambition is to love and serve and care for the flock and avoid appointing elders marked by selfish ambition and greed and a hunger for power. Which brings us lastly to the third way in which we can identify ungodly leaders. That's by the character that they display. And I love Jude, I love this. In the middle of his scathing letter, pronouncing judgment on ungodly leaders with boldness, rebuking them with austerity and severity, in the middle of all this, Jude Jude, uh, writes a poem, basically. I mean, it's not a poem, but he, he gets poetic. He starts using poetry in his description. He gives six poetic descriptions of these false teachers and their character. He calls them... Hidden, hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Uh, their love feasts were like these, these big corporate feasts, big potlucks. And it's at these feasts that they would uh, often observe the Lord's Supper. And yet these ungodly leaders and false teachers were present at these feasts. Jude calls them hidden reefs. You know, of course, hidden reefs are uh, a treacherous danger for boats and for sailors since they remain under the surface of the water so that you can't see them. But if you run over them, you'll sink your ship. Well, these leaders are like that. They've crept into the church, but they're wrecking the community and threatening the spiritual unity, which is displayed and demonstrated and celebrated at the Lord's Supper. They're treacherous, hidden reefs, threatening to shipwreck the unity of the church. Likewise, Jude calls them shepherds feeding themselves. Again, They seem to be elders or pastors in the church. The New Testament uses both those words synonymously. They're shepherds, which is in other translations uh, translated maybe as pastors. They're shepherds, they're pastors, and they've been tasked 
with feeding the sheep and providing the nourishment of God's word to the sheep and caring for the sheep and tending the sheep. And yet, instead of fulfilling the duty of the office, they're leveraging the office for the sake of their own greedy gain and influence and power. They're using their their ministerial position for their own selfish ambitions. They're shepherds feeding themselves. Next, Jude calls them waterless clouds swept along by winds. And that may not make immediate sense to you, uh, but imagine that you live in a dry climate and you're involved in some sort of agriculture. Uh, Say you're a farmer in California and uh, you haven't had rain and and you don't know how long. Well, one day you, you, you see what looks to be a rain cloud off in the distance and you think today could be the day. And then that cloud blows right past you without so much as a drop. How disappointed would you be if that happened? Well, these ungodly leaders are like that. They may have looked good in the beginning. I mean, how else would they have been placed in leadership? They, have, they should have had something that at least commended them for leadership in the church, and yet they failed to bring the refreshment promise to the garden of God. They promised, they, they promised to, to feed the sheep and care for the sheep, and yet they failed to refresh and nourish God's people with God's word. Instead, they've been carried away by every wind of doctrine and blown right over God's people. Waterless clouds swept along by winds. Fourth, Jude writes that they are fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Of course, Jesus told us that we we could identify uh, false teachers by the fruit they bore, their fruit being their, their character. Are they virtuous, godly, or righteous? Or are they wicked, evil, and ungodly? Do they produce the fruit of the Spirit that Paul speaks of in Galatians 5? Of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Or do they produce the works of the flesh? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, dissensions, divisions, envy, and more. These leaders do not produce spiritual fruit, Jude says. Jude says that they are like fruitless trees in late autumn. Late autumn, of course, being the time that you would have expected a tree to be filled with fruit. And yet, instead of producing fruit in their season, they have produced the works of the flesh. Fifth, they are wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Now, being called a a wild wave depicts um, that these false teachers and their immoral behavior lacked all self-control. They they lacked all kinds of, uh, all restraint. And just as a wave has no control over where it crashes, these leaders have no self-control. And and, and he says they cast up the foam of their own shame. This foam is a reference to, to the filth and dross that can be brought up to the shore by waves. Well, likewise, the moral filth of these false teachers is seen in their behavior and their teaching. And lastly, Jude says that they are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Stars in the night sky would have been used as guides for travelers. Uh, You know, having a a fixed point in the night sky would help you figure out uh, what direction you need to head uh, in order to arrive at your destination. Well, these leaders, Jude says, they serve no such function. They're wandering stars. While they assert themselves as guides for God's people, they wander through the night sky, leading their victims astray into immorality and heresy. And because of this, they won't be lit for long. They won't shine for very long, he says, but they'll be cast into the gloom of utter darkness forever. 
which of course is a reference, being cast into an eternity of hell in the lake of fire. We can identify ungodly leaders by the character they display. It might compromise the unity of the church with their dissensions and divisions. They might seek leadership for selfish reasons. They won't refresh or nourish God's people. They produce the works of the flesh instead of the fruit of the Spirit. They show a lack of self-control and restraint. They fail to guide God's people into the truth. They're characterized by selfish ambition. They reject God's authority and depend on sources other than Him and His Word for their doctrine and conduct. These are the characteristics by which we can identify ungodly leaders and false teachers, hucksters, heretics, and hypocrites, cheats and cons who are seeking to hold leadership or holding leadership positions in the church. It was something that Jude's people struggled with in their day that they needed to be alert to, and it's something we need to be alert to in our day as well. It's not a new threat, nor is it an antiquarian one. It's a threat that we must be alert to until glory. And with that, you know, um, Anglican minister Dick Lucas preached a wonderful sermon series on Jude. I commend it to you. When he came to this text, his sort of application was then that we ought to be thankful then for faithful and qualified shepherds that we do have in our churches. And, you know, that's probably true. That's probably an appropriate and fine application to this text. And yet, as I read Jude's description of these false teachers here, it makes me all the more thankful, not just for faithful and qualified ministers in our churches, but more so, it makes me thankful for Jesus as the great shepherd of the church. For one, because he won't let the gates of hell prevail against his church. Even with the threats of false teachers and myriad false teachers that we've seen in church history and in the scriptures and all that have come since, Christ has preserved his church in the world and preserved his gospel witness in this world to the point that the gospel has reached us so that we as a people can be saved. These ungodly leaders didn't wreck God's plan. They didn't extinguish the light of the gospel in the world. They didn't prevail against the church because Jesus protected his flock as the great shepherd of the sheep. He protected his flock with great care and with great might. And he'll continue to do so so that the saints will always be marching on with the light of the gospel for the sake of the world. But what's more is reading Jude's description makes me even more thankful for Jesus because he's the photo negative of these leaders, of these ungodly leaders in every way. While they sought to assume the authority and and place of God in their pride and arrogance, Jesus, as God himself, humbly assumed the place of man in his incarnation. While they were marked by selfish ambition, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. While the character they displayed was marked by self-promotion and self-interest, Jesus looked not only to his own interests, but to ours also. And all of this is, is ultimately and preeminently displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ, where he poured out his own blood and his own life for us so that we would be safe and secure in his saving grace as his flock forever. He took on the form of a servant, and he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, where he had nails driven through his hands and feet and where he suffered and bled and died because of his loving and tender heart for the lost and wandering sheep of his fold. He's not a shepherd feeding himself. 
but one who leads us into the green pastures and still waters of a saving grace. He's the one who restores the souls of wandering and broken sheep. He's the one who leads us in paths of righteousness as our sure guide for his name's sake. He's the one whose mercy and grace will follow us all the days of our lives and who will lead us home into his house forever. He's the photo negative of these leaders, of these ungodly leaders in every way. And so while we seek to be faithful to identify false teachers and ungodly leaders in the church when they come, we keep our eyes on Jesus, we place our faith in him, and we trust him as our chief shepherd. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would seal this word upon our hearts. Help us to be careful and discerning as we encounter um, false teachers in this world, uh, whether that be direct encounters or encounters through social media or, or podcasts or whatever else. Help us to be discerning, but help us most of all to keep trusting in Christ and to keep following him and to stay within his fold, to keep ourselves in the love of God continually by trusting in him, loving him, following him, obeying him as our chief shepherd. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.